Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, my name is Carl. I'm one of the pastors here at City Reach. And there is this phrase that you may have come across, and it goes like this. We stand on the shoulders of giants. What this catchphrase is trying to communicate is that the privileged position that we have today has been made possible by so many people that have gone before us. Maybe because of what they sacrificed or what they invested or maybe the kind of life that they modelled before us. If you're new with us tonight, we are neck deep into a series called Walking with Giants where we're taking the time to look at the giants of church history, to look at those who have invested deeply for the sake of gospel mission. To understand tonight's giant, I need to take you to Berlin. Uh, my wife and I, before we lost our freedom of and then entered into having children, um, <laughs> decided that we wanted to do a tour of Europe. And, and so we did a tour of Europe that was honestly unbelievable. We had um, pizza in Italy and uh, we checked out the ruins of, at Pompeii and um, at New Year's Eve we were standing 200 metres from the Eiffel Tower. But my favourite thing out of the whole time away was Berlin. If you wanted to plant City Ridge Berlin, I'm the guy for it, right? <laughs> I have this great heart for Berlin. We're there at Christmas time, and in, in, around Christmas time in Germany, it's winter, and it was snowing, and they've got all these unbelievable Christmas markets, and we're walking around in Berlin, and everyone's walking around with waffles and eggnog and, um, and schnitzels, and it's, it's, my, it's my hometown, right? And um, it was this unbelievably beautiful place, but the truth is about Berlin is that Berlin has not always been beautiful. The giant that we're looking tonight is Corey Tamboom. If it's fair to call Jerusalem the home base of the Christian church, then Berlin was really the home base of the Nazis, World War II, and Adolf Hitler. The giant tonight of Corey Tamboom, a woman who lived through a time unlike any other time in history. No war has taken more lives, no war has involved more countries. And no war has more horror attached to its plotline. World War II is the scene of not one but two atomic bombs. It is the scene of the famous Pearl Harbor bombing by the Japanese. It's when the Allies, including the Anzacs, stormed Normandy. Approximately 60 million people died in World War II, which stretched six years from 1939 to 1945. And it, it, it took the lives of more than twice the population of current Australia. Of the people that lost their lives, six million of those people were Jewish. To understand the uh, world of Corrie ten Boom, you need to understand the tiniest bit of oversimplified World War II history. In World War I, Germany, uh, Germany declared war at a time when everyone had made these uh, strong technological advances. Germany had lost a bunch of land in previous wars, and they felt like it was time to make some allies and to go to war. Well, they lost the war. And then part of losing the war came a number of penalties. One of those penalties was that their army was reduced to 100,000 um, people in their army. Another one of those penalties was that they had to admit and acknowledge that World War I was entirely their fault. And perhaps the biggest punishment that they received was a fine of 390 billion US dollars. They actually only finished paying this sum of money off eight years ago. 
In an attempt to pay this fine, the Germany just started printing more and more money. But the problem is, is that when you print more money, you don't have more money. The value of the money that you currently have becomes less and less. So in 1919, the US dollar, one US dollar was worth um, 4.5 German marks. And in 1923, one US dollar was worth 4.2 trillion marks. The result of this was that Germany became incredibly broke, poverty-stricken, powerless and embarrassed. Adolf Hitler came along at a time when Germany needed a saviour. Adolf won fans by making clear who their enemy was and how they would get victory. Their enemy being all those who opposed Germany in, World War, uh, opposed Germany in going to war in World War I, primarily communists and Jews, and their victory would be a hostile, worldwide ethnic cleansing. In 1934, when the president of Germany died, Hitler submitted a bill to parliament to allow him to make all future laws and decisions on his own with no approval. Through intimidation, Hitler's law passed. Then in an event which has come to be known as the Night of the Long Knives, Hitler had many of his own party assassinated and key figures that stood opposed to him. Over the next five years before the war, Hitler pushed his message of hate throughout his entire country. Hitler Youth was established, which was a youth group for Nazi boys to learn combat, Nazi ideology, and especially the need for ethnic cleansing. By the time World War II started in 1939, Germany had become indoctrinated. You had millions of Jews who, were, who had an ingrained hatred for Jewish people or were too scared to speak up against the Nazi party. In World War II, the most dangerous thing that you could do, apart from fighting on the front line of the war, was to be associated with Jewish people. I actually remember visiting a memorial in Berlin called the Memorial to the Murdered Jews. And Germany have actually done a really unbelievable job at acknowledging the sins of their past. Then you go to this memorial and just under, underneath this memorial is this museum. You go into this one room of this museum and they've got this slideshow. And um, in this slideshow, what you see is that um, a name will pop up on the screen and linger there for 10 seconds. And that name is the name of a Jew that was murdered in World War II. It will linger for 10 seconds and then it will go away and then another name will come up um, to be seen. For that slideshow to go to start to finish, it takes an entire year. Truly, it was one of the most horrific moments in history. Tonight, we're going to be tracking through the life of Corrie ten Boom, a woman who lived through this era, the... Um, Primarily, the amount of content taken tonight is from her book, The Hiding Place, an autobiography that she wrote, which is really an incredible read. And we're going to be following the narrative of her journey through tonight. But here's the quick 30-second flyover of the ministry of Corrie Tamboon. Corrie and her family were known for saving the lives of an estimated 800 Jews from the grips of the Nazi party. Before she was caught and sent to the, one of the most evilest places that someone can find themselves in, she found herself in not one, but two Nazi concentration camps. There she led many people to know Christ, and upon her miraculous release, went straight back doing ministry to Jewish people and preaching a gospel of forgiveness, forgiveness and hope. So now let's ask two questions. Firstly, how could a Christian 
come to be known as a giant of church history in a time filled with such horror? And secondly, how can the testimony of Corrie help me bring glory to God and joy to our city? Well, I want to argue that there are at least four pillars within the testimony of her life that will help us bring glory to God and joy to the city. So pillar number one from the life of Corrie is the testimony of availability. The testimony of availability. Corrie was not who you would typically imagine to be making a difference in the world. When we think about people that would be making a difference in the world, typically our society tells us that it would be athletes or it would be rock stars or it would be the famous people of the world. Corrie grew up as the son of a watchmaker in a small town of Har- uh, called Harlem in Holland. And at the start of World War II, she was single, living at home and in her late 40s. At the start of her autobiography, she describes herself as a woman whose waistline had long since vanished. And she never gained much attention from any man. Corrie did grow up in a Christian home with parents who loved Jesus. She had four older siblings and each one of them in their own way served the Lord. Her father had a deep respect for the Jewish people as he saw them as God's first love, the first people that God created and called his own. When the war broke out and the Nazis overran the once neutral Holland, all Jews were made to wear yellow stars to identify them out in the public and Corrie's father, Caspar, wore one too in protest. When the Nazis invaded Holland, the Nazis did something almost more horrible than killing the Dutch. They converted them. Many Dutch people sided with the Nazis, which ultimately birthed the need for the Dutch underground, a secret movement created to resist the Nazis and create escape passages for the Jewish people, which the Ten Boom family became a part of. Corrie's home, the city of Harlem, changed. Jews were terrorised. The Dutch turned on the Dutch and something needed to be done. The Ten Booms began to see be seen as a refuge for the Jews. They used their house to home home many, many Jewish people, keeping them in secrecy from the Nazi party and then creating safe passages for them outside of Nazi-occupied area. After they had helped their second Jewish person, Corrie ten Boom prayed this prayer. Lord Jesus, I offer myself for your people in any way, any place, any time. Corrie knew, Corrie knew she had human limitations. Corrie knew that the enemy was great, but Corrie knew to whom, where her prayers were going. Corrie was an ordinary woman living in an extraordinary time. But the question that I have to ask myself and the question that I want to ask you is, are you still believing the lie that to be used by God in the world, you need to be approved by the standards of the world? We might, ask, we might say to ourselves, I need to be smarter. I need to be more popular. I need to be more confident. I need to be more resilient. I need to be more fill in the blank. What is your more? I need more time. I need more permission. I want to submit to you that for your effectiveness to increase as you serve in God's kingdom, the only thing that God needs more of from you is your availability. Here's the way you become used by God. In Mark 1, verse 17 to 18, Jesus says this, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the disciples immediately left their nets and followed him. 
Jesus calls the disciples and the disciples immediately made themselves available. The emphasis on this verse is on two points. Point number one, Jesus is the one that will make you fishers of men. It is his empowering that enables gospel mission. And point number two, the disciples' immediate response. The disciples made themselves available. I need to confess that sometimes my ministry effectiveness is cut off at the knees because I look around and I think I'm not the most qualified enough to be used. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you're not competent enough to be used? Like you think, I could never run a life group. I could never be a youth leader. I could never step out in faith. I could never be bold in my workplace. I could never share the gospel to someone in my family who doesn't know Jesus because I'm just not equipped enough. Well, the model in the Bible to be used by God to have an effective ministry is simply to make yourself available and to pray the dangerous prayer of, God, would you be willing to use me in any way, at any time, in any place? God, God does not judge our ministry effectiveness by the world standard. In fact, God constantly, constantly chooses the most surprising candidates. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Naomi was a widow. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep with the one job to protect Jesus. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced. Zacchaeus was too small. And Paul killed Christians. You don't qualify yourself for serving in the kingdom of God. God's grace qualifies you. So when was the last time you prayed a dangerous prayer, a prayer like Corrie Ten Boom? Lord Jesus, I offer myself for your people in any way, in any place, at any time. How did Corrie make a difference? She wrote God a blank check. Are you willing to write God a blank check? Corrie prays for a dangerous prayer and a woman of a most unlikely position is used by God to liberate hundreds and hundreds of Jews from the grips of the Nazis, persevere through not one but two German concentration camps and bring a message of hope, love and forgiveness on a global stage. In Corrie's preaching ministry after the war, she once asked this question, is your prayer your steering wheel or your spare tyre? Do you use prayer just when your health and your wealth is affected? Or do you use prayer to say, God, give me more gospel opportunities. Give me more opportunities to serve you in your mission. Give me more opportunities to put my life on the line for the sake of the gospel. God, take me out of my comfort zone for the sake of gospel mission. When was the last time you prayed a gospel dangerous prayer? Here's our challenge when we're next asked, how can we be prayed for? Don't just think about our health and wealth. Say, pray that God will use me in any place at any time. God use me in my university, in that class that I just hate, hate going to. God use me in my family who have no heart for each other, let alone the gospel. And God use me at Woolworths. Use me in the most mundane moments of life to bring you glory. 
I might have lived with my family for 20 years, for 30 years, for 40 years, and I, I think that nothing, there's no way that the gospel could take root there. But God, would you use me to bring you glory? Would we be willing to pray that kind of a dangerous prayer? The first pillar of Corey's testimony is the testimony of availability. The second pillar is the testimony of perspective. Of perspective. Smuggling Jews out of the Nazi overrun areas of Holland took time. The Ten Boom family would house individuals and families for months. For almost two years, the Ten Booms risked their lives to save the lives of others. To keep this up, they had to build two internal security devices. One, an internal alarm system that was quiet enough not to be heard from the outside or downstairs, but loud enough to signal to the rest of the house that Nazis or someone untrustworthy had entered the watchmaker's shop. They also needed to build a hiding place for when they knew that their house would be raided. With the help of the Dutch underground, they built a false wall at the back of Corrie's room, changing the depth of her room by only 30 inches. In February of 1944, the Ten Boom family were betrayed by one of their own countrymen, arrested and taken to prison, when her father would die only 10 days later. Amazingly, the Nazis never did find the six Jews that the Ten Boom family were hiding in that secret room at the back of Corrie's bedroom. They stood upright for 47 hours before they were rescued by a local police resistance group. That arrest catapulted Corrie into one of the most horrific places anyone in history has ever found themselves, under Nazi imprisonment. We need to understand that one of the realities of the Nazi scheme was control and fear. Much of Germany was a prisoner of Hitler as much as other parts of Europe. You could hold a significant position within the Nazi military and still feel no greater than a prisoner. Listen to how Germany, German Nazi Lieutenant Rams, who had the responsibility of first interrogating Corey, uh, Corey inside prison, describes himself. He says this, and this is taken from her autobiography. He says, Miss Tamboon, it is possible that I appear to you to be a powerful person. I wear a uniform. I have certain authority over those under me, but I am in prison. Dear lady from Harlem, a prison much stronger than this one. In a conversation between Corrie and the lieutenant, the lieutenant quizzes her about her work prior to the war, which she had spent ministering to children with a disability. He says, Surely one normal person is worth all the half-wits in the world. She writes this, And then to my astonishment, I heard my own voice saying boldly, May I tell you the truth, lieutenant? The truth, sir, I said swallowing, is that God's viewpoint is sometimes different from ours. So different that we could not even guess at it unless he had given us a book which tells us such things. Yes. I knew it was madness to talk, to talk this way to a Nazi officer, but he said nothing, so I plunged ahead. <laughs> In the Bible, I learned that God values us not for our strength or our brains, but simply because he made us. Yeah. Who knows, in his eyes, a half-wit may be worth more than a watchmaker or a lieutenant. This is madness for Corrie to speak to a Nazi officer this way. How can she be preaching the confronting news of the gospel to a man who must be responsible for sending, if not hundreds, thousands of people to their death? 
In the Gospel of Luke, Luke records that Jesus was appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. The rising because accepting the grace that God gives us means that we have this new identity in Christ and that we receive an inheritance given to us from the Father through Jesus, that now we have this internal, eternal relationship with God where we're now defined not by the sins of our past, but because of the great accomplishment of Jesus Christ on the, on the cross. That's our rising, but also the fall. The fall because the gospel is offensive to the proud. It teaches us that we're not worthy of God's grace. We are all equally not worthy of God's grace. We cannot earn God's grace, so all men and all women come to God equally with nothing to offer. In that moment, Corrie was saying that she was as equal as the lieutenant. This bold proclamation to the lieutenant could have been the end of her. Corrie is, Corrie's life is remembered most by people for the deep love that she had for people that it was much easier to hate than to love. She had a perspective that all people matter. Why? Because all people matter to God. I wonder what your heart is for that difficult person at work. I wonder what your heart is for that family member that you can't get along with. And I wonder what your heart is for that person that keeps mocking you for your Christian faith. The people in our lives that are much easier to be annoyed by, much easier to alienate, much easier to walk by on the street. Do you have a faith-filled Corrie perspective or do you have a Jonah perspective? The Bible is full of testimonies of God's people needing a perspective readjustment. Consider, a moment, consider for a moment the story of Jonah. Jonah is given a mission by God, much like the mission of our church. He is to go to a great city to proclaim the goodness of God, call people to repent so that they might experience the joy that we have in God and that God might be glorified. Jonah wants nothing to do with this plan and he runs away. Jonah does eventually submit to the plans of God, but he has no heart for his assignment. How do we know this? Because when the plan actually works, Jonah is furious. A whole city turns to know God. A whole city turns to know God and Jonah is enraged. Jonah 4 says this, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. For Jonah, it was better for him to see people that didn't love God die than to experience the grace of God. The Lord responds and at the end of the chapter says this, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more, there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Recently, I connected with a pair of Mormons. And usually, I'll be honest, I see them as a nuisance and a distraction. This time, I was surprised by the grace of God. God gave me a perspective readjustment and God gave me the perspective of pity. 
that I was in this moment where I was distracted by other things and I had two people who I believe don't know Jesus come to me and ask me to talk to me about Jesus. What an opportunity that was before me. So many times we have people knocking our door and we see that opportunity, that moment as a nuisance. Or we see people stop us on the street or we have these moments in life where it's an opportunity to declare what God has done in our life and we see that moment as too difficult and we need a perspective readjustment. How we need God to enlarge our heart that we might have the heart of Christ. Corrie is well known for, for this sentence. She says, There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. God's primary strategy, God's primary strategy for bringing light to the world is you. If we do not carry the light into the darkness, the world will remain blind. In Matthew 5, Jesus describes the church as salt and light. Salt improves taste and light shines the way forward. Corrie's testimony of perspective charges Christians to remember that we are light carriers. If we do not carry the light into the darkness, the light will not be carried to the darkness. God's primary missional strategy is the church. God's primary missionary strategy for the area that you work in, for the building that you occupy, for the office that you work in, is you. That God has placed you in that place for such a time as this that you would be used to glorify God. Sometimes we see these difficult conversations or these difficult relationships or these annoyances as things that get in the way of what we're trying to do with our lives when they're actually the whole reason that we've been given our life. So that we might have the perspective of Corrie to spread God's love wherever we are. After Corrie was in prison, spending over a month in solitary confinement in a prison cell a fraction wider than the frame of a door and just six steps long, barely enough to lay down, she was transferred to Vought Concentration Camp and Ravensbrook Concentration Camp that would have made her time in the Nazi, uh, Nazi prison look like a five-star hotel. There were two types of Nazi camps in World War II. There were concentration camps and there were extermination camps. Extermination camps where you were sent to be immediately executed and concentration camps where you were, were, where you were sent to be worked to death. So let's ask this question of Corrie's testimony. How is it possible to maintain a godly perspective when nothing around you seems all that godly at all? Let's look at pillar number three, the testimony of together. The testimony of together. I'm sure Corrie would jump out of her grave if she could, if she heard that her life was being characterised as a life of perfection. Let me reassure you now that no testimony of any Christian from the annals of time will be a testimony of perfection. From the life of Corrie, we learn a key strategy for battling sin drift. But first, let me set the scene of Corrie's life in a concentration camp. Corrie was first kept in Bort concentration camp for three months and then Ravensbrook concentration camp for four months. Roll call was anywhere between 4.30am and 5.30am each morning where women would line up in 10 rows of 10 and roll call, roll call could take anywhere from an hour to hours. Standing in the freezing winter of anywhere between zero degrees and five degrees in the morning wearing nothing but a single coat and a single dress. Corrie writes of her time in Ravensbrook saying, Barracks 8 was in quarantine compound. Next to us, 
perhaps as a deliberate warning to newcomers, were located the punishment barracks. From there, all day long and often into the night, came the sounds of hell itself. They were not the sounds of anger or of any human emotion, but of a cruelty altogether detached. Blows landed in regular rhythm, screams keeping pace. We would stand in our ten deep ranks, with our hands trembling at our sides, longing to jam them against our ears to make the sound stop. In her book, Corrie describes a single day where the women witnessed over 700 men being executed by the Nazi soldiers. Truly, life in concentration camps was beyond our understanding. So how does one's faith survive in a place of such evil? How does one's faith survive in a place of such darkness? Well, Corrie did have her moments. She writes, As the cold increased, so did the special temptation of concentration camp life, the temptation to think only of oneself. It took a thousand cunning forms, I quickly discovered that when I manoeuvre our way, her and her sister Betsy, toward the middle of the roll call, we had a little protection from the wind. I knew this was self-centred. When Betsy and I stood in the centre, someone else had to stand on the edge. How easy it was to give it other names. I was acting only for Betsy's sake. It was colder in Poland than Holland. These Polish women were probably not feeling the chill in the same way we were. Selfishness had a life of its own. And even if it wasn't right, it wasn't so wrong, was it? Not wrong like sadism and murder and every other monstrous evil we saw in Ravensbrook every day. Oh, this was the great ploy of Satan in that kingdom of his, to display such blatant evil that one could almost believe one's own secret sins didn't really matter. Wow. Here's the question that I asked myself as I read this section of a book. Do I judge the weight of my sin based on how deeply it offends God or how comparable it is to the sins of others around me? Do I judge the weight of my sin based on how deeply it offends, it offends God or how comparable it is to the sins of others around me? Do secret sins count? If I sin and no one sees it, is it really a sin? Is pride really a sin when I haven't stolen anything? Is selfishness really a sin when I still serve at my local church? Is hoarding luxuries still a sin when people are more luxurious and better off than I am? This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, we must pay much closer to attention, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. How do we end up far from God in both our heart and both our actions? It's because we let ourselves drift. The writer of Hebrews is concerned because he knows that the moment we allow compromise to creep into our lives, we become a wooden house infected with termites. Everything can look good on the outside, but on the inside, we are crumbling. Here is the beauty of God's church. Did you know that one of God's key strategies for sanctifying you, for growing you up to be more like Jesus and growing the effectiveness of the gospel mission in your life is actually the person and the people sitting next to you? Hebrews 3.13 says this, But encourage one another daily, as long as it is, as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 
Encourage one another as long as it is called today. He's saying, encourage everyone all the day long. Let us ask this question. What is lost if we do not encourage one another daily? We risk our hearts being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Clearly, God has purposed one another to be heavily invested into the lives of each other heavily invested into the lives of the people sitting next to us. There is this one scene in, in, a, in a book in the concentration camp uh, vault with Corrie's sister Betsy, one of the most remarkable characters in the whole book, where Corrie is overwhelmed by her imprisonment and is dreaming of life outside of this camp. And the scene goes like this. Betsy, I wailed, how long will it take? Perhaps a long time, a long time. Perhaps many years. But what better way could there be to spend our lives? What better way could there be to spend our lives, she says. I turn to stare at her. Whatever are you talking about? These young men, that girl back at the bunkers. Corrie, if people can be taught to hate, they can be taught to love. We must find the way, you and I, no matter how long it takes, She went on, almost forgetting in her excitement to keep her voice to a whisper, while I slowly tuned into the fact that she was talking about our guards. I glanced at the matron seated at the desk ahead of us. I saw a grey uniform and a visored hat. Betsy saw a wounded human being. And I wondered, not for the first time, what sort of a person she was, this sister of mine, What kind of road she followed while I trudged beside her on the all-too-solid earth? All through their time in concentration camps, Betsy shines to Corrie like a lighthouse of Jesus' love. Corrie has rage against her oppressors. Betsy's compelled by love and forgiveness. Corrie and Betsy dream of a ministry to the broken after the war finishes. Corrie realises that Betsy's dream is primarily first for the guards and secondly for the prisoners. Corrie complains of a bed full of fleas. Betsy reminds her to be thankful in all situations. Betsy is mocked and beaten while Corrie is filled with what she describes as murderous anger. And Betsy tells her to look to Jesus in all circumstances. The bunker in which they stayed is transformed by Betsy's love for the fellow prisoners. And even Betsy's last words become Corrie's most famous words. As Betsy's body became weaker and weaker just before she died in Ravensbrook at the age of 59. She said, we must tell the people what we have learned here. We must tell them that there is no pit so deep that he, our God, is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corrie, because we have been here. The truth is that there are times in our lives where we all need a Betsy and we all need to be a Betsy. Why do you need to be a Betsy for today? Who do you need to be a Betsy for today? Who do you need to reach out for today and say, I've got your back? Who do you need to reach out to that person in your life that may be struggling, the person that in your life that maybe most people tend to reject, the person in your life that maybe you have once rejected? Who is that person in your world that you actually need to be a Betsy for? The testimony of being a Betsy. Who do you need to encourage today of the strength of their heavenly Father? The testimony of together is that we are designed better together. We live out our identity 
through community as we serve on mission. Be a Betsy. So far from the life of Corrie ten Boom, we've seen the testimony of availability, the testimony of perspective, the testimony of together, and finally we'll learn the testimony of gospel living. God used Corrie's father, Casper, to raise a daughter with a deep love for the Lord. God used Corrie's sister to teach Corrie to apply the forgiveness she saw so powerfully in the gospel. Amidst Corrie's wrestle with anger, suffering and resentment, such a resilience in her faith had developed that she carried the joy of the Lord with her wherever she went. Through what could only be described as a miracle, Corrie smuggled a Bible with her into the prison and while every woman was searched and patted down before she went in, not a single guard laid a hand on her. The gospel mission of Corrie and Betsy was profound. This is what she described, and this is what she described as the purpose of her life in these concentration camps. But as the rest of the world grew stranger, one thing became increasingly clear, and that was the reason the two of us were here. Why others should suffer, we were not shown. As for us, from mornings until lights out, whenever we were not in ranks for roll call, our Bible was the centre of an ever-widening circle of help and hope. Like waves clustered around a blazing fire, we were gathered about it, holding out our hearts to its warmth and light. The blacker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I would look about, as Betsy read, watching light leap from face to face. More than conquerors. It was not a wish. We knew it. We experienced it minute by minute. Poor and hated and hungry. We are more than conquerors. Not we shall be, we are. Life in Ravensbrook took place on two separate levels, mutually impossible. One, the observable external life grew every day more horrible. The other, the life we live with God, grew daily better, truth upon truth and glory upon glory. Many women were saved because of the ministry of, the women, of these women and many believers persevered in their faith because of God's miraculous hand working through the boldness of these women. If the guards had caught these women running these church services and with this Bible, they would have undoubtedly been killed. How was Corey and her sister able to achieve such self-sacrificing ministry? Well, I would contend that it was because they had a functioning conviction that their lives were defined by the gospel. J.D. Greer argues that much of the problem with Christians working out how to grow up as a mature Christian is that we forget that our lives don't just start by the gospel, but it continues by the gospel. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Galatians 2.20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What this means is that my life is no longer defined by the sins or successes of my past. I now live in light of what Christ has accomplished for me. I'm a child of God that does not need the approval of others for my own self-worth and my own validation. I'm a child of God. 
I'm a child of God that is empowered by the Spirit to accomplish more than I could ever imagine, not because I have strength, but because I've received the strength of the Lord. Because of a clerical error made by, Nazi, by Nazis, Corrie ten Boom was released from Ravensbrück uh, one week before everyone her age was murdered. She left that concentration camp and went straight back to helping Jews. After the war was over, she set up a refuge for those affected by the war, allies and Germans alike. She also travelled to 60 countries in more than 30 years, proclaiming the message, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. But perhaps her most famous speaking engagement came early on in her speaking ministry. She finished her sermon preaching on God's love and then in a church in Munich, she actually spotted one of the Nazi guards that had terrorised her in Ravensbrück. Corrie finishes her book in this way. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I prayed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. The legacy of Corrie ten Boom is not how impressive her stature was or her, or her intellect or how crafty her room was. And I'm sure that Corrie would be disappointed if the lesson we took from her life was anything to do with her holiness, even though her holiness was most evident. I contend that the legacy of Corrie ten Boom is caught up in how willingly she allowed the gospel to change her. What are you going to let your life be defined by? Because you have options. You can let your life be defined by your failed accomplishments. And you can fill a cup full of anxiety of all the things that you should have accomplished in life and you have not. And all the things that you tried to accomplish and you failed at them. You can try to define your life by all the things that you have accomplished and all the successes that you have. And you can keep trying to keep up this facade that you have it all together and that your life is perfect and that you're talented and you don't need anybody else. Or you can choose to have your life defined by what has been accomplished for you. And that's the gospel. That it's not actually about you and your cleverness. It's not about how smart you are. It's not about what you can do for the Lord, but it is about what God can do through you. Through people that make themselves available. Through people that are willing to have a changed and renewed perspective. Through people that are willing to invest their lives into a local church and for people that are willing to live our, our life on gospel mission. I would love to pray for those of you who would love to have your life defined by the gospel. 
I would love to pray for those of you that would like to not define your life by what you've accomplished, but by what has been accomplished for you. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you for the life of Corrie ten Boom and what she has taught us and what is evident in your word. Thank you, Lord, that we don't need to copy the life of Corrie. Thank you that you have given us the life of Jesus. And I do want to pray for any person that is here tonight that is overwhelmed by striving in their accomplishments to gain a sense of self-worth. That might be that they've failed at much and they feel like they're not much. Or maybe they've accomplished a lot and they feel like they can't keep up this weight of success. God, I just want to thank you for your gospel. I want to thank you that our lives are defined by Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished for us. Thank you that we can rest in your grace and rest in your gospel and we can have our life defined by the glorious cross. Thank you, God, that we get to call ourselves a child of God. Thank you that our identity is in you. Thank you that we're adopted into the family. Thank you that once we are adopted, that you will never let us go. God, I want to pray for us as a church. Would you give us what we need every single day of our lives to glorify you? every single day to have this gospel conviction that our lives are defined by the grace of the glorious Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen.